Stonewall Jackson has long been a figure of legend and romance. He is considered, without argument, one of history's greatest military figures. Jackson's brilliance at the art of war tied Abraham Lincoln and the Union High Command in knots and threatened the ultimate success of the Union armies. In March 1862, Jackson was merely another Confederate general in an army fighting what seemed to be a losing cause. By June, he had engineered perhaps the greatest military campaign in American history and was one of the most famous men in the Western world. S.C. Gwynn's Rebel Yell is a vivid narrative that delves deep into Jackson's private life, including the loss of his beloved first wife and his regimented personal habits. Gwynn traces Jackson's brilliant 24-month career in the Civil War, his stunning effect on the course of the war itself, and the tragic circumstances of his death. S.C., or Sam Gwynn, has spent most of his career as a journalist, including stints with Time as bureau chief, national correspondent, and senior editor, and with Texas Month Monthly as executive editor. He is the best-selling author of Empire of the Summer Moon, which spent 82 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award. And Rebel Yell, The Violence, Passion, and Redemption of Stonewall Jackson, is also a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award and uh, is shortlisted for the Penn Literary Award and uh, was a, uh, won an award from the New York Civil War Forum. So uh, I hope you'll join me in giving a warm VHS welcome for Sam Gwynn. Uh, it is very nice to be here uh, on many different levels. I, I spent a lot of time in Richmond uh, working on this book, and I spent a bunch of time here uh, in this very place. Um, I would like to uh, invite you today to imagine Thomas J. Jackson as he might have looked to the world on Thursday, April 11th, 1861. That's a day before the Civil War began. See if we can get the technology to work. Yes. He's 37. He's thin enough that you might have called him gaunt. He's about six feet tall, which makes him five inches taller than the average American male of his day. You would have noticed his pale blue-gray eyes and his thin lips, which always seem to be pressed tightly together. If you look closely, you would also have seen an enormous pairs of feet and hands that he never quite seemed to know what to do with. You would have found Thomas Jackson, as everyone else did, shy and very quiet. His silence was the most striking thing about him. <coughs> you would have found it difficult to engage him in conversation, mostly because he refused to go along with even the most routine conventions of everyday conversation. He refused, for example, to say that he wished it was warmer than it was or colder than it was or even that some accident had not happened. And if you said, gee, it would be nice if it stopped raining, his answer might be, yes, if the maker of the weather thinks it best, thus instantly killing the conversation. <laughs> 
He wouldn't say anything bad about anyone else, even when goaded to do so, which meant that he had very difficulty participating in even the most rudimentary forms of gossip. He refused to talk about himself, and he could be maddeningly literal. When someone used the term, you know, in conversation, he might point out that he did not, in fact, know. Jackson was even odder in large groups. When he stood to speak in a public forum, such as the Lexington, Virginia Debating Society, he often faltered and stammered and was forced to sit down without finishing. And because he was a stubborn and determined man, he would often rise to try that again, only to sputter and fail even more miserably and sit down again, red-faced and embarrassed, while everyone around him cringed and looked the other way. Wherever he was, at precisely nine in the evening, no matter what was going on, and even if someone was in the middle of a sentence, he would excuse himself and go home. So these were the mild eccentricities. <laughs> he was obsessed with his own health. He sought water cures all over the country, drinking and soaking in the healing waters. He often ate nothing more than cold water and stale bread, or sometimes only buttermilk and stale bread. He would bring his own food to dinner parties. <laughs> he obsessed about everything that involved his body, <clears throat> starting with his eyes and digestive system, but including his throat, liver, kidneys, blood, nervous system. He was a bit of a faddist when it came to uh, uh, health trends. He inhaled glycerin and nitrate of silver. He swallowed ammonia. He once became convinced that one side of him was smaller than the other and did exercises to improve it. I must say that in spite of these <laughs> uh, characteristics, he also did have some real things wrong with him. Uh, he had what we would now call uveitis, so it can be a very painful condition of the eyes, and he suffered from what was then called dyspepsia, kind of a catch-all term for the sour stomach. In spite of all this, Jackson managed to hold a job as a professor at a college called the Virginia Military Institute in Lexington, Virginia. This is a, a painting of, of be, many of you here, because I'm speaking in this part of the country, uh, have probably seen uh, been to Lexington and seen this. This was this this was the original barracks building at VMI, burned during the Civil War. Uh, so at VMI, he taught a course called Natural and Experimental Philosophy, and we would pretty much call that physics today, more or less. It included the most difficult scientific and mathematical concepts of the day: electricity, acoustics, electromagnetics, magnetics, optics, and astronomy. And though accounts of Jackson's various eccentricities may differ slightly, there is one thing on which everyone across the board is in complete agreement, and that is that he was the worst teacher that anyone had ever seen. <laughs> he didn't really teach at all. He just stood at the blackboard and summoned the cadets forward to do their recitations at the blackboard. And heaven help the poor cadet who had a question, because the, the, the question always produced uh, only one kind of an answer, and that was Jackson regurgitating word for word back at the cadet exactly what was in the textbook. <clears throat> now, you might think that such a stickler for detail, that kind of detail, might be also a strict disciplinarian. In fact, the reverse was true. Jackson, when Jackson's back was turned, the class was pure pandemonium. Spitballs everywhere, students drawing pictures of his feet on the blackboard, trussing cadets up to the door so that when Jackson opened the door, the cadet would go sprawling. In artillery class, they would remove the linchpins. That was what their favorite thing, was to remove the linchpins and the cannons, so the cannons would go spinning down the hill with the, with the major uh, flailing afterward. 
So you would have said that this man, this Major Thomas J. Jackson, was, if not a loser, something close to it. To call him a failure, a complete failure, is probably too harsh. There were stories that he had served bravely in the Mexican War 15 years before, although most people didn't know those stories. He was just part of that great undifferentiated mass of humanity that wasn't going anywhere, and nobody around him thought he was going anywhere either. Um, and though he never changed his behavior to match that of Lexington society, <coughs> he, over the decade that he taught there, Lexington sort of adapted itself to him. He was kind of the odd major. He was, you know, in the way that kind of a, an eccentric person becomes a minor civic institution. That was Jackson. But what you would not have known if you were walking the streets of Lexington, Virginia, in, Ver in April of 1861, this is a pre-war photo of Lexington, um, what you would not have known if you were in that town then was that all of the preceding descriptions of Jackson are almost ridiculously incomplete. They did not begin to describe him. They would not have begun to capture who he really was. Because while Lexington knew the caricature Jackson, the health crank, the unbending professor, the social bore with the high Christian principles, the women in his life, two, two wives and a sister-in-law, saw someone else entirely. This is a picture of his first wife, Ellie, who died giving birth to a stillborn son. This is her sister, Maggie, with whom Jackson was in love but couldn't marry because of the rules of the Presbyterian Church. What happened to Anna? Oh, and this is his wife, second wife, Anna, shown here in a post-war photograph with their daughter, Julia, who, uh, <coughs> who was the only uh, one of Jackson's child to survive. These women saw something that other people did not. Concealed behind that carefully constructed social front, as it turns out, was a personality of a passionate and deeply sensitive man. Jackson loved Shakespeare and the architecture of Gothic cathedrals. When he went on a tour of Europe in 1856, he went everywhere and did everything, but he visited only one battlefield, Waterloo. He was much more interested in art and architecture, in the scenery of the mountains. He was self-taught and completely fluent in Spanish. He was a first-rate gardener. He had the full 19th century romantics embrace of, of beauty and nature, glorying in sunsets and mountain views. He had an almost mystical sense of God to whom he consecrated every act of his waking day. Behind closed doors, he could laugh, uh, while, while people in the school saw only the stern, dour professor, behind closed doors he could joke and laugh uproariously. He loved to play with children rolling around on the floor speaking in Spanish baby talk. This personality was completely cloaked. No one in Lexington, no one on the planet Earth except these few women knew this about Jackson. And he was really not that, as I said, that stern, dour figure. He actually had, and most people, even people who think they know Jackson would be surprised to learn this, he actually had a happy, sunny, and optimistic personality. His neighbors would have been astonished to know that. But this, too, is Major Jackson. Now I would like you to imagine Thomas J. Jackson, as he might have looked to the world on Thursday, June 19th, 1862, about 14 months later, as the train he is riding on pulls into the station <coughs> at Charlottesville. In the previous 80 days, in the spring of 1862, Jackson, now known throughout the country by his nickname Stonewall, 
had turned the Civil War upside down. During a time when rebel armies were going down to defeat in Mississippi, Tennessee, Louisiana, and the Carolinas, Jackson had taken a small force of usually 12 or 13,000 men and deployed it with such dazzling skill in the Shenandoah Valley that he had soundly beaten three Union armies with more than 50,000 men. Shenandoah Valley was a <coughs> lovely place to make war. Um, he did things that no one else had done. His troops at one point covered an astounding 646 miles in 48 days, fighting five major battles and a number of skirmishes. He marched him at a pace unknown to soldiers of the day. His army seemed to appear out of nowhere, striking out of mountain passes and concealed valleys. He used trains in a way that had never been used before in tactical warfare. By the end of the campaign, he had driven four Union armies from the greater part of the Shenandoah Valley. He had inflicted 5,000 casualties, captured 3,500 prisoners, 9,000 small arms, and a huge quantity of stores and supplies. He had then evaded a massive pincer movement designed by Lincoln personally to destroy him. And just at the moment when he had evaded the two pincers, uh, when, he, when his staff and the staff and of, of the Union generals both believed that he had to flee, he instead turned on both jaws of the pincer two Union armies and destroyed them in succession. But Jackson had done more than just drive Union armies out of the valley. He had also knocked the entire 150,000 man offensive against Richmond off balance. At one point, the threat of Jackson was such that it even caused a panic inside Washington, D.C. All this made him famous in a, t in a war where techniques of marching and fighting were being reinvented almost literally hour by hour. Jackson's intelligence, speed, and aggression were the wonders of North and South alike. He was the talk of salons in London and Paris, where his, his valley campaign, campaign was being compared to Napoleon's legendary Italian campaign. And at just at that moment, he was the most famous military man in the Western world. And in case you were wondering about other military man, men in the Western world, see if I can find one. Ah, there we go. Uh, <laughs> Lee, to this point, Lee had had a very unsuccessful early war record. You know, he had not done well. And um, he at this, it, from, to this point in the war, he'd really been more, of a, more or less a glorified military sidekick to President Jefferson Davis. He had yet to make his mark. Of course, that was going to change very soon. And it was Lee's extraordinary and implausible partnership with Jackson, in fact, that changed the war in the East in 1862 more than any other single factor. But for now, Lee is just another general with a sketchy Civil War record. To the South itself, Jackson has won his battles just when hopes were at their lowest, what the Confederacy had desperately needed in a war it was obviously losing against a vastly larger foe with greater resources was a myth of invincibility, proof that their notions of a moral, noble, and courageous Southern character were not just romantic dreams, proof that with inferior resources, the South could still win the war. Jackson, with his brilliant underdog Valley campaign, had given that to them. If you think about the old Confederate adage, you know, we, any one Confederate could whip three Yankees. Actually, the math holds up in the Shenandoah Valley. That train he was riding on <coughs> June 19th that I mentioned a few moments ago was headed to Richmond, 
where 120,000 Union soldiers at that moment faced 65,000 Confederates in one of the biggest mismatches of the war. It was believed on both sides that Richmond would be lost. The Confederate government had loaded its gold onto a train and it sat in the station with a full head of steam at all times ready to leave. President Davis had already sent his wife and children from the city. Jackson was coming on the train that day to save the city of Richmond. That's what people thought. By extension, he was going to save the Confederacy. And of course, those were absurd, and, and that was all based on his great glorious performance in the Valley with an army of, uh, you know, usually uh, 10 or 11,000, often well less than that. And those were absurd expectations. The idea that he was going to save the Confederacy, absurd expectations to load on this one disheveled general with his two exhausted divisions of men, no matter how wonderfully they had performed, you know, at Winchester. And yet it is a matter of record that Jackson did exactly that. Two months after his arrival in Richmond in the summer of 1862, mainly on the strength of Lee's daring and Jackson's astounding maneuvers, the capital being threatened was no longer Richmond but Washington, D.C., a city into which the Union Army all of it beat a fearful retreat, the greatest military disaster of the war to date, the Battle of Second Manassas. So as I was working on this book, people would ask me, well, what got you interested in Stonewall Jackson? And, and you know, I, I sort of rest my case. Um, what I have just described for you was an absolutely astounding transformation, not only of an ordinary man, but kind of an eccentric ordinary man. And that happened in less than 14 months. And of course, the Civil War transformed many people. And one of the fun things about studying it is you can, you can look at these transformations. The Civil War made a specialty out of transforming people. Mostly it was to the negative. Uh, you know, there was nothing more common in the early war than the glorious congressman slash senator slash governor slash wealthy businessman quickly exposed as an inept or cowardly general. Um, and on the, on the plus side, of course, the most famous of the transformations was Ulysses S. Grant the man who was leaning on a broom, a, a photograph leaning on a broom in front of his father's leather store in Galena, Illinois, a failure at everything he'd ever done, a washout from the army months before the war started. William Tecumseh Sherman, failure at all of his, his business adventures, teaching at a small school in Louisiana. But what I argue in my book was that, is that Jackson's rise to fame, power and legend was every bit as deep and transfiguring as that of the two Union generals, but it happened much faster. His ascent was much steeper, more dramatic. His effect on the first two years of the Civil War, more profound. And all of this, his performance and everything he did, actually made, made Jackson the war's first great general in the, in the, in the public mind. He was the first he, uh, I compare him to a rock star, and I know that's a cliche, except I honestly can't find a better one. Um, he was mobbed in the streets, especially women going for locks of hair and buttons on the coat. Men wanted to touch him and shake his hand and talk to him, say even a word. There, there, at one point, Jackson comes upon some, some guy, a Union prisoner, who's stealing hairs from his, his horse, Little Sorrel's tail. And Jackson goes, what are you doing? And the guy turns around and goes, oh, hi, General. He says, well, these things get two bucks a piece in New York. Um, and there's a description by, by Jeb Stewart's chief of staff where he's in Frederick, Maryland, and he's mistaken for Jackson. And he describes being pursued through the street by the mob of women and everybody else. And he, 
He said it. He said at some point he 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 ducked into a hotel to get away from it, and he said it just got worse in there. He said it was like jumping into a lake to get out of a rainstorm. <laughs> so one measure of fame, you know, is I guess is whether people write songs about you while you are still alive. I mean, there's probably a lot of people in this room that are very competent and leaders in their fields, but you're probably not having songs written about you while you're alive. Um, so here is one, I'm gonna play you just a little bit of uh, around this time when he got famous. One of the more famous Confederate songs of the war was called Stonewall Jackson's Way. And it kind of just chronicled all the ways in which he was great. And the men sang it on the march and sang it in the camps. Stack arms, men pile on the rail, stir up the campfire pride. No matter if the canty fails, we'll make a roar and die. Here Shenandoah crawls along, here Burley Blue Ridge echoes strong to swell the brigade's rousing song of Stonewall Jackson's way. We see him now, the old... Now there's like another 18 verses if you want me to play them. I, I can just keep going with this. Uh, so, so the question, and the reason I wrote this book is how does such a thing happen to someone who looked to almost everyone except these few women at the start of the war like a very ordinary man? So I would like to start with the Battle of First Manassas, whereas the Yankees had it because they like to you know, name stuff after water, um, First Bull Run. Here we see the early mechanisms of fame at work. This is the summer of 1861, the first year of the war. There were a few clashes between North and South, but nothing big. And everybody knew that the first great battle was going to be fought in Northern Virginia, and everybody on both sides knew that it was going to be definitive. The cowards were going to be sorted out from the heroes, and there was going to be glory in sorting them out. And both sides were absolutely convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that they were going to win that battle. So on July, 1st, 18, uh, July 21st, 1861, a Union army under General Irvin McDowell and a Confederate army under Generals Pierre Beauregard and Joseph Johnston faced each other across the slow-moving stream known as Bull Run. This was a few miles north of the strategically critical rail crossroads at Manassas Junction and about 30 miles west of Washington, D.C. <clears throat> now, what you're going to see in my primitively animated battle map here is, uh, let's see if I point a few of these things out here. So. Uh, here we have Bull Run, sluggish stream running northwest to southeast. Uh, down here we have Manassas Junction, which is the reason the battle is being fought there in the first place. Uh, out there somewhere is Washington, D.C., about 30 miles that way. And uh, the, uh, the blue rectangles are Union, and the red rectangles are Confederate, lined up along, let's say, along this point here, this point. The, the idea generally being the battle is going to be fought there. Well, that's what the Confederates thought anyway. But what I'm going to show you, though, is a rather stunning and, and, and successful and largely undetected flank march that the Union is going to make around the Confederate left, putting a large number of people, like 19,000 of them, squarely in the Confederate rear. In military terms, that's a disaster. You lose that battle. It's over. Okay? And this is what you're going to see happen now, I hope. Okay, so this is, the, we're moving, now think, think of each of those as containing 9,000 men. Union troops moving around the Confederate left. Now, 
the Confederate high command here, Beauregard, he believes the battle's going to be here, and they don't see this happening. But a few little brigades and pieces of brigades, Confederate brigades, do see it happening, and they move to try to stop it. Now, also, you have to, if you've, I don't know, some of you may have been here to Bull Run, but this, th we're talking four or five miles here, so there's cons considerable distance uh, along this battle line. Okay, so the problem is that there's only about 4,000 of these little guys versus 18 or 19,000 of these guys. And so there is a sharp fight on Matthews Hill, and the Confederates fight very bravely. Actually, it's astounding how, how it would, the, the, for, for this being the first big fight, nobody could believe these, how, how the troops will stand there and take fire and give fire and just fight and stand up, both sides. Very, very vicious fighting. But it's that the Confederate forces eventually get driven back. Now, something interesting happens now. So just as these guys are being driven back, there's another little brigade right here, five Virginia regiments sitting right here, commanded by Thomas Jackson. And he detects this too. He now sees that the battle is going on back here between Matthews Hill and Henry Hill, not where everybody thinks it's going to happen. So Jackson now detaches and moves to try to stop it. So at this moment, when the Confederates are streaming, you know, there's, well, there were 4,000 of them to start, considerably less now, streaming, bloody and beaten. What Jackson sees in front of him, sitting there on the top of Henry Hill, was a full-blown military disaster. There was absolutely no doubt about that. There was no sign of rebel troops rallying. There was nobody coming to rescue them. No Union troops withdrawing. No Confederate field artillery moving up to help. So, Something interesting happens here. So one of the people, and you have to remember this name, that Jackson saw streaming in retreat was a Confederate general named Bernard B. South Carolina. B had been commanded one of those little pieces of brigades and brigades that had gone to fight heroically. So Jackson says, so B says, they're driving us. We, we can't do anything about it. And Jackson, who, who knew B uh, at West Point, um, said and it, that they had fought together in the Mexican War. Uh, Jackson's response to B was very characteristic of the man. Sir, he said to B, we will give them the bayonet. Now, that notion was quaintly old-fashioned even when he said it. It was Napoleonic, in fact. Hardly anyone would die in the Civil War of bayonet wounds. But the meaning of it was that, and the point was clear, was that the bayonet was an intensely personal way to kill someone, and Jackson meant business. This is the first time we see Jackson doing something that pretty much nobody else would do. His first concern was not whether he should retreat or how soon he could be reinforced or how with 2,600 men and a few cannons he was going to stop the federal juggernaut that had just swept more than 4,000 Confederate soldiers from the hill. His reaction was instinctive and immediate. Fight, fight now, hold the line. And what he did next was deeply unorthodox. What most people would have done, see, we have to think Henry Hill here is a, is a hill, but there's a flat top to it here. What most generals would have done was they would have moved to the front of Henry Hill, looking down at the steep hill, the conventional high ground, right? You get to take the high ground so you can shoot down at the enemy. Jackson did not do that. Jackson went to the backside of Henry Hill here, where there was a line of trees. He put his men in the trees was actually one of the most brilliant tactical strokes of the entire war, which, which Beauregard soon recognized when he arrived. 
But so Jackson men could sort of hide in the pine trees in the backside of Henry Hill. Not only that, his guns could fire and their recoil would carry back into the woods. Um, and finally, this, it, the position offered Jackson's men an unobstructed 300-yard field of fire over the flat top of Henry Hill. So now what Jackson does is, this is probably, as I said, the first great instant, one of the first great instances of extreme bravery in the war. He decides he's going to set his five Virginia regiments into a battle line back there, and this is what he does. And what he, the way he does it is he kind of roves back and forth on horseback, setting, putting his guns in place and getting his men in place. Well, in fact, all of his men were lying, as they said, flat as flounders. They couldn't get flat enough because what was happening was federal guns up here were just unloading. There was no federal assault yet on Henry Hill, but the uh, large numbers of federal guns, and these weren't firing solid balls, they were firing the kind of balls that explode 70 yards in front of you and come at you with thousands of little balls. Jackson sat there calmly for an hour and just back and forth in this absolute hail of lead and steel. Nobody could, people who, who saw it couldn't believe it. Anyway, Pretty soon, pretty soon, the Confederate high command down here, Pierre Beauregard, who's who was convinced for a very long time the battle was going to be fought here, now they realize it's going to be fought here, and Beauregard moves to Jackson's aid. Jackson becomes the center of the battle. The entire battle gets built around Jackson, um, and it is, in fact, a fierce, oops, what am I doing? And there is, in fact, a very fierce fight on the top of Henry Hill. The result, as you may know, was a stunning Confederate victory. Union troops were not only routed, they were transformed into a wild, unruly mob that fled in panic clear back to Washington, tramping over congressmen and their wives who had come out with the picnic baskets to watch the Union victory. Jackson had been one of the, clear, one of the battle's clear heroes. And it was here that the machinery of fame and legend began to crank into action. Here's how that happened. So while the battle at the top of the hill was raging, the dashing South Carolinian Barnard B, there he is again, who had actually been wandering around down here looking for his men. The, the Confederates had been beaten so badly in the morning that they, they had lost each other. So finally B, after wandering for hours, comes right, right around here somewhere, comes about 500 yards this side of Jackson, comes upon the 4th Alabama, his guys. He goes, boy, I'm so glad I found you. And he, he goes up to them. They're all bloody and they're battered. And he says, he says, are you willing to go and uh, to re-engage in the battle? And the men say, well, yes, they are. Y yes, they were. And, uh, and B then points to the top of the hill and says, yonder stands Jackson like a stone wall. Let's go to his assistance. At the time B's statement probably sounded just like an inspiring bit of metaphorical language, and maybe that's all he expected it to be. But it became one of the most famous utterances of the Civil War, not just because those were the last known words spoken by B, who had less than an hour to live, not just because the battle was about to turn decisively in the South's favor, which it was, but also because those words gave birth to a name and a legend. Something else happened of interest uh, are right around this same time. Um, Jackson had ordered his men at one point to wait in the woods until the enemy was 50 yards away. 
And then he said, quote, then fire and give them the bayonet, he told them, and when you charge, yell like the Furies. That's what he told them. Now, it is not clear what country boys from Virginia, whether they knew what the Furies were. <laughs> yeah, they were Greek vengeance deities, for those of you who don't know. Uh, maybe they knew that, maybe they didn't, but whatever, whatever it was, they took the meaning. Uh, and when they charged, they made a noise that no one had ever heard before in the war. Um, whose inspiration is unknown, there, though there are many theories. Um, it became the most famous battle cry of the war, the rebel yell. It was the implausible result of a sequence of sound that were somewhere between the screech of a bird and the bark of a fox. And, the no and, and here's something interesting about this. Um, the rebel yell, w w again, the most famous battle cry in the war, it was something that, you know, the... the, the, the Confederate soldiers did. They did it in their camps. They did it on the march. They did it during battle. They loved it. It was this great, scary thing. And the, the problem that historians have had is that during, uh, is that in, in, in the 20th century anyway, what we, what we had to go on were these films and audio of old Civil War veterans getting together in the 20th century. And they get together and they go, oh, boys, let's give the rebel yell. And they give the rebel yell. And you Google it and you can see it. And it's, you know, you hear it and it's fine. It's sort of like movie Indians. It's, and the problem with it is that, it, is that w when you read the Union soldiers' descriptions of the rebel yell, it, they're invariably, they're alike. They say it's nightmarish, feral, unearthly, inhuman, nightmares for the rest of my life, corkscrew up the back of my spine. That's what they said it was. And so you listen, you go, well, okay, you know. It just doesn't sound that way. So anyway, so not long ago, the, the Richmond-based Museum of the Confederacy, bless its heart, got a hold of a couple of individual sound files where they had asked individual Confederates to do the rebel yell. Th these are audios. And the two guys that they, they had, w one was, they, they were not from the same regiment, not from the same state. They didn't fight in the same theater, and they were recorded in different years in different states. There was nothing to connect them at all. And yet the sound they made was almost exactly the same. And I'm going to give you a version of it here, but this isn't it. it it's a, it's a three-parter. It's a short, long, short. It's a like that. Okay, now, you just heard me do that when I'm making a fool out of myself. You just heard me do that, and you go, but Sam, that, that really doesn't sound like the rebel yell, or you know, that doesn't sound like corkscrew up my spine. The Museum of the Confederacy had the same reaction. They said, that doesn't sound like anything. That just sounds like a fox barking or something. And so they had the brilliant insight to go take these individual files to a sound lab and layer them in on each other to create the effect of the rebel yell at company level, I, I think regiment and, and brigade level. Um, and when you put that together, it completely transformed the idea of the rebel yell. And, and now the, the reenactors who used to do the old movie Indian thing now do this thing. Um, so I'm going to play this for you. Um, and this is, this is only, this is what would have been a company level, 70 people. Rabid coyotes, anyone? <laughs> um, that, to me, makes more sense. I mean, first of all, that's only 70 people. That's only 70. That's a company. That's like the smallest unit, right? 
you let's imagine it at regimental and brigade levels. Let's imagine a whole army doing that in its camps at night, which they would do. Um, anyway, it changed the understanding, um, the understanding of, of, of this particular thing that Stonewall Jackson invented, I guess. Um, so back to the mechanisms of fame. When the Battle of Manassas was over, the, the lion's share of credit for the Confederate victory went to Pierre Beauregard, even though it rested substantially on the shoulders of people like Barnard B. and Jackson acting without orders. Jackson's central role, his brigade, he was the, he, the battle had been built around him, his brigade suffered by far the worst casualties of any brigade in that battle. His performance at first went unnoticed by the general public. His role was not even mentioned in the Virginian newspapers for a full week after the battle. The slight was so obvious that his, his wife Anna even wrote to, to Jackson to complain about it. She's going, What's, what, you know, we all know what you did. Why doesn't anybody else understand this? Jackson writes back, so you think the papers ought to say more about your husband, he said. My brigade is not a brigade of newspaper correspondence. It is not to be expected that I should receive the credit that Generals Beauregard and Johnston would. But then something interesting began to happen. Because Barnard B. was one of the battle's great fallen heroes, his hometown paper, the Charleston Mercury, ran detailed stories of B.'s heroic exploits. And as it turns out, the Mercury was one of the most influential papers in the entire Confederacy. Its stories were reprinted all over the South. They were reprinted in London. And of course, part of that story of the Barnard B.'s gallant gallantry was that he had come to the aid of the beleaguered Jackson, the man standing up there like a stone wall. That was part of the story. And so in a strange way, Jackson's fame happened to attach itself to that of B in the stories that went out through the South and through the North too, for that matter. Um, there were also peop the people who had fought on Henry Hill and you know, the surest way to get famous in the Civil War was just to do something great and you know, the, the boys all wrote home and the letters were read in hearths and in town squares and the, his fame spread that way too. And by these means did the curious new nickname attach itself to Jackson, Stonewall. It really was kind of that kind of idea of a, particularly since Confederates just saw this as an invasion of Virginia. Somebody would stand in Virginia like a stone wall, chin up and you know, eyes blazing against the, uh, the northern aggressor. It was the way the South liked to think of his fighters. Although in some of the earliest, <laughs> some of the earliest days of the nickname, some Union uh, soldiers got it humorously wrong. One Union regiment were told that they were about to fight the uh, dreaded stone fence Jackson. Thus does history turn on small things, right? Yeah, Stone Fence Jackson, it doesn't say. Um, and note also that the nickname Stonewall, importantly, did not only attach itself to Jackson. It attached itself to these five Virginia regiments who became known thereafter after and on into history and eternity as the Stonewall Brigade, the most famous Confederate fighting unit of the Civil War. So in a story of great change in a man's life, one of the most striking transformations happened right at the end of that life. In 1862, Jackson had remade himself as a sort of instant legend with his Valley Campaign, the stunning victories of the Army of Northern Virginia at Seven Days, Cedar Mountain, Second Manassas, and Fredericksburg, and a drawn battle against a vastly larger foe at Antietam. That winter, Jackson had the winter of now, we're in the winter of 1862, 1863. He had fulfilled other ambitions too. He would he had been raised an orphan, and he had, he had lost his first wife and his, and his son, and then he lost another child to his second wife. 
She gave birth to a daughter who, who survived. He became a father, and his wife and daughter visited him that winter. Jackson and another did something else curious that winter. Um, so the winter that I'm talking about here, uh, this is after the Battle of Fredericksburg, stunning Confederate victory. The Confederates kind of withdraw to the high ground, the army does, and this is near Fredericksburg um, in a, a place called Moss Neck that is, is, becomes one of the most important part of his life. And Jackson, if you, by way of background to what happened in Moss Neck, Jackson, if you just looked objectively at the man, you would have said, this man should have been a Presbyterian minister, period. That's what he should have been. It's what he wanted. He thought he got, he prayed in the morning. He prayed, you know, he prayed drinking a glass of water. He, he prayed, he, that's what he did. He, he thought about God. He read the Bible. He also had an interestingly pastoral side to his personality that was observed all the way along his life when he was at West Point. If somebody was sick, he was the one showing up with tea and sympathy and even with his generals that he didn't like during the war, he would show up at their tents with tea and sympathy in the war. There was that side of him. But Jackson, unfortunately, was painfully shy, was not good with people. He was abysmal public speaker. Not all of those things he realized meant that you could not be a Presbyterian minister. Um, and, and so what happened in the winter of 1862-63 against that background is inter interesting. Jackson not quite single-handedly, but he was the major force by far, was the major force in driving the, this amazing wave of revivals that swept the Confederate Army that winter. Jackson did it entirely out of the limelight. He didn't want to be the front man for it. He refused to be, refused to require his men to go to church, refused to say, look at me, I'm a general who goes to church, you should too. He did it by, by recruiting uh, and putting together an amazing network of regimental chaplains. He, he funded some of them himself. He, he had literature printed. He helped in the construction of chapels that winter. Um, he was, again, behind the scenes, one of the major driving forces of that huge change in the Confederate Army. So in a way, we have this idea of, of redemption. I guess the redemption works on a number of levels, and that was one of them. Um, there was something else, too, about him. I mean, the man had really, you know, his friends just couldn't believe it. I mean, they looked at him and they go, I can't believe this is the guy you know, that, we, that was my colleague at VMI teaching physics. I mean, they, they flat couldn't believe it. But one of the things that I noticed, though, was, was uh, and I, I got this first from two women, one of whom was, was his wife, Anna. And they said that when they saw him in 1863, he just didn't look like the same guy. They said he, he was transformed. Anna thought he was much better looking. Um, but he, so I'm going to take you back to this photograph I showed you before, the tight-lipped, a Martinet professor. Okay, so this is taken uh, less than two years later, well, no, around two years later, two weeks before his death. Um, that's a 39-year-old man. Um, and then after the winter of 1862, 1863, and all these fulfillments of his life, was the Battle of Chancellorsville. When the winter ended, Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson marched out with 60,000 men to face 130,000 Union soldiers. The numbers were starting to look familiar. They ended up driving the entire Union army into the Rappahannock. Jackson engineered the war's single most brilliant march. Robert E. Lee had both his and the South's greatest victory. As one Confederate officer put it, watching Jackson ride out with Lee on the first day of that battle, quote, as a fighter and a leader, he wrote of the former college professor, as a fighter and a leader, he was all that can ever be given to a man to be. 
And then Jackson was dead. The victim of, ac uh, of an accidental shooting by his own men it was actually the worst staff work of the war. Jackson was somebody who always pushed the envelope, was always going where he shouldn't go, always putting himself in danger. Um, and in this case, he had done this absolutely stunning flank march, had taken an entire Union Corps and driven it two miles right through the middle of the Union Center and out the other side, and it was just, had, it was just a stunning piece of military tactics. And darkness was falling, darkness had fallen, Jackson wanted more. Fighting at night was a bad idea. He was going to do it anyway. He was going to drive the Yankees into the Rappahannock that night. And so in order to reconnoiter the Union lines, he was out there. He and A.P. Hill were out there with 19, as a total of two groups, totaling 19, beyond the Confederate battle lines, in between the Union and Confederate battle lines, after dark. And oh, by the way, they didn't tell anybody that that's what they were doing. And as I say, staff work, somebody needed to tell someone so that when the riders came back, the uh, Confederate, um, in this case, the 18th North Carolina, had no choice but to assume it was Union cavalry shot. Jackson was wounded. Jackson had lost his left arm. Uh, sorry, he had a, his left arm amputated, a common enough thing in the Civil War. Uh, and actually, he was, he was taken to this little house south of Fredericksburg to recover. And in fact, he was recovering. The uh, Union surgeons couldn't do much with what a mini ball would do to bone. It would just shatter it in, into little pieces so you couldn't really mend it. But they were very good with amputations and everything was going fine until Jackson uh, came down with pneumonia and like so many other soldiers in the Civil War, died of some other direct cause other than a wound. <coughs> he died of pneumonia and you can see, and this is, uh, this is a death mask from the Valentine Museum here in Richmond. Um, and you can see the, at least certainly compared to the Chancellorsville photo, you can see how emaciated his face has become even in the course of a week from the pneumonia that he had. What happened in the wake of Jackson's death was unique in American history and it was characterized by something that I think other historians have failed to notice. And that is the fact that Jackson's death triggered the first great national outpouring of grief for a fallen leader in American history. I will repeat that. The first great national outpouring of grief for a fallen leader in American history. It takes a moment to get your mind around that. It may sound odd to you. To be sure, there had been a few big state funerals. Benjamin Franklin drew 20,000 in Philadelphia in 1790. About 100,000 came out after Zach Taylor died in 1850. But when Franklin died at 84, he was sick and obese. His, his glory days were long past. Taylor was a mediocre president who wasn't in office long enough to have any impact. Washington died at 67, was buried quietly with no fanfare. As was Jefferson, who died at 83. John Quincy, Ad I'm sorry, John Adams, who died the, that same year at 90, drew 4,000 people to a church in Quincy, Massachusetts. But none of these deaths of these great glorious Americans had the urgency or meaning of Jackson's. The closest parallel that I can come up with would have been George Washington's death on the battlefield at Yorktown in 1781, but that didn't happen. Jackson's death touched the heart of every, every home in the South. Jackson's death shattered the South in a way that I think because the war kept going, kept grinding onward after, I think that the edge, people, people forgot what that moment meant. 
there were some, in fact, some remarkable parallels with another death that happened two years later that has overshadowed Jackson's death in American history, that of Abraham Lincoln. The similarities are striking, starting with their symbolism. All that wild grief was not just for the two leaders, of course. Their deaths embrace the deaths of all soldiers on battlefields far away. Their bodies became the bodies of young men who would never return. Their funerals stood in for the hundreds of thousands of funerals of, sol of dead soldiers that would never take place. Lincoln and Jackson alike were in, in death were vessels into which the pent-up heartache of the American nation, north and south, could be poured. What happened after Lincoln's death has, become, has, has come to be called the national funeral. In Confederate terms, Jackson's was too. There were other similarities too. Both men died at the height of their power and achievement, at the high watermarks of their respective countries. Both were transported back home by trains that wound symbolically through the countryside and were met by thousands of grieving Americans. Of course, the scale of Lincoln's was much bigger. Lynchburg was not New York. But the intensity of emotion was the same. There were also some notable differences. In death, Lincoln remained a deeply unpopular figure in the South, to say the least. Southerners understood correctly that he would have treated them better than what came after him, but they still hated him. Curiously, and this was something for me that was a bit of a discovery in this book, not so Jackson in the North. That's not to say everybody loved Jackson in the, in the North, but after his death, there were many expressions of admiration from all quarters, of, from abolitionist newspapers that I, that I quote in my book, the bells pealing in, in New Hampshire. There was a sense that this was a, man was a Christian gentleman, a, a, a self-effacing, humble Christian gentleman, and oh yes, by the way, <coughs> excuse me, the most brilliant warrior anybody had ever seen. Um, as, as, as one person pointed out, to have fought um, against Jackson was second only to fighting under Jackson. There was badges of honor all around here. Um, many people in the North believed that he had been a noble warrior fighting, of course, for the wrong cause, but a noble warrior nonetheless. I rejoice at Stonewall Jackson's death as a gain to our cause, wrote Union General Governor K. Warren, one of the heroes of Gettysburg, Quote, and yet in my soldier's heart, I cannot but see him as the best soldier in all of this war and grieve at his untimely end. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to field some questions here, so uh, I'll let you guys sort out who asks. Jackson's uh, certainly an engrossing uh, character. How did he get along? He served under and with uh, Johnston, uh, Beauregard, Longstreet, and Stewart. How did he get along with the command staff of the Confederate Army? He, he generally, uh, he, Jackson famously didn't get along with, with people of his rank or at his level. Um, the, he was with, uh, Johnston at his first command in Harper's Ferry. Um, I think from what we know about those two, uh, uh, Johnston was the one who saw his talent and promoted him. Um, uh, as far as we can tell, uh, it was a relationship of respect and it worked. The, the, the Lee relationship, of course, is legendary, uh, very close. Um, 
the uh, Beauregard, we don't have much. I don't have much on the interaction between those two. Uh, who else did you ask about? Oh, it's Stewart. Yes, well, Jeb Stewart was, again, one of the uh, Jackson who um, really did sort of have trouble getting along with people at his level. Uh, at one point, he had, I think, all or most of his general officers under arrest. Um, <laughs> but uh, that would never have included Jeb Stewart. Jeb Stewart was just this happy, ebullient, just guy who would come into your tent singing and, you know, dance around and take, uh, you know, and... He and Jackson, he kitted Jackson famously at the at, at Moss at the Mossnet Christmas party where he just kitted him all over the place. Jackson would go along with the kidding, um, which he never did. Jackson, no one could kid Jackson. Um, they there was a great and deep bond of affection um, between those two. And and I don't, interestingly, I I think they were both very very religious men, um, and uh, and they were both risk takers. And in the early war, anyway. Uh, when the Confederates had this astonishing advantages of cavalry, a lot of the, the cavalry advantage of the early war went to Jackson because he had Turner Ashby and Jeb Stewart as his, as his generals. Um, anyway, we could, we could go on with this. His, his fights with A.P. Hill and other generals and, and Richard Garnett are sort of legendary. So he is, uh, he, he did get along with some of those people, though. <laughs> um, Sorry. One of the things that, that stuck out to my wife and I in watching Ken Burns' version of the Civil War was his reference to Jackson as that steely-eyed killer. Uh -huh. That's the term he used. Yeah. We, we, we still use that ourselves, teasing each other about, <laughs> that, well, he must be a steely-eyed killer. But that's uh, a, a little different point of view, perhaps. It is. Well, Jackson was, in, in fact, a steely-eyed killer. Jackson was one of the most aggressive um, and effective killers in America. I mean, it, it depends on what, what word you want to use here, but so was George Patton. Um, so was Douglas MacArthur. Um, but uh, yeah, Jackson was, was, I think, probably the most aggressive commander America's ever produced, meaning he was going to move against the enemy and he was going to inflict damage on the enemy. Um, Jackson had a, had a very, very clear understanding of war. And it's interesting, Jackson, in the early war, um, uh, very early, right away, Jackson's advice to Richmond was, well, give me an army, and I'll go burn Baltimore, and I'm going to burn Philadelphia, and I'm going to burn Pittsburgh. We're going to take it to the Great Lakes. We're going to make them feel pain. And at one point, he even suggested black flag war, which is not a pretty concept, um, no quarter. And, and, and it's interesting because the, you know, Judah Benjamin and the Secretary of War and, and, uh, and, and Davis and people in Richmond thought that Jackson was just flat crazy. He was some, like some attack dog that you had to hold back. He was crazy. He was going to take men north and horrible things were going to happen. And the South, really, we're, we're the good guys. We're fighting a defensive war here. We're not going to do that. Well, you know, guess what happens? Guess what, guess what the South realizes? Lee crosses the Potomac twice, right? Once to fight at Antietam and then to Gettysburg. The idea being was, was Jackson's original idea, which is go make them feel so much pain that one of two, one of maybe three things happen. One, they come to the table. Two, Britain and France intervene. Three, the peace Democrats win the elections. And you get rid of Lincoln. Whatever you're going to do, mess with them on that level. And so Jackson's, I mean, Jackson, when I, that kind of attack dog, let's go kill them all and burn everything, early war. In a way, I take it the same way that, that, that you might think about dropping a bomb in Hiroshima. Now, what do you want? You want to fight every single man, woman, and child for 15 years uh, in, a, in a land war, 
and compare those potential casualties versus we're gonna drop a bomb or two and it's gonna be awful but the war's over. Jackson's idea was to, Jackson's feeling was that the Confederacy, and he was not alone in feeling this, could not possibly win the war. Not win it, didn't have the resources. They could bring it to a close though they could, so I think a lot of that aggressiveness early on was exactly correct um, and Lee ends up, uh, you know, if, it, if Lee had won at Gettysburg, I believe he was heading toward Philadelphia. Uh, two questions. One, I enjoyed both of your books tremendously. Well, thank Are you, you working on a third? Am I working on a yeah. third? Yeah, I'm working on a book about American football. All right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which, will, which will go back, it's basically about the forward pass, but it'll, it'll go back and we'll, we'll, we'll see hi historical figures like Newt Rockney and Pop Warner and, and people like that. Uh, and the one thing that intrigues me about Jackson was, I think at one point he answered a question by saying, well, yes, sir, we'll kill every last one of them. Right. And yet he had this strong religious belief. Where was Jackson's view on slavery? Um, he did, he, well, let me just make a comment on the first thing, yes, but he wouldn't have been the only you know, religious man in, in American history who wanted to kill the enemy. Uh, there were lots of people in American World War II who wanted to kill Nazis who were very religious men. Slavery is a really, you know, I think for me as a Yankee who grew up in a world where we didn't take the South all that seriously. You guys will be really surprised to know that, right? Um, and <laughs> we, <laughs> we uh, it was like, well, they fought the war for slavery and we beat them and, you know, then they spent the next hundred years trying to undo it. Okay, this northern version and a very simplistic version. And so... Jackson actually offers this tremendously interesting and complex way to look at slavery. So Jackson grows up um, in his uncle's mill, and his uncle has uh, varying numbers of slaves, but usually 12. However, they're in the, what is now West Virginia, in a place where very few slaves, really, not, doesn't a slave economy. Um, however, Jackson befriends an old slave named Uncle Robinson who, you know, rows the, him and his sister across the river and where they go and rest under the shade of the trees, if you get my meaning. And it's a very close relationship. And then as an adult, uh, Jackson uh, inherits three slaves through his wife, Anna, who, who they come with her, one of whom raised Anna from birth. So it was a kind of a, a surrogate mother figure, very, very close. Her two teenage sons were just kind of rowdy and they let them drive the cart because they you know, weren't interested in doing anything else, but it, not, it appears to be a happy relationship. Jackson then himself acquired three. The first one was a man who came to him and said, I would like to buy my freedom. Will you please buy me and then let me work at VMI and essentially use my rents to buy my freedom? Jackson said yes. So Jackson bought a man in order to let him buy his freedom. The second uh, slave he acquired was a a four-year-old girl with many mental handicap. Jackson was begged so that she wouldn't be sold off down the river to just take her. She wasn't going to be any good for work or whatever. She, that and the third was a uh, <coughs> another woman who was uh, again going to be uh, somebody came to him and begged Jackson to buy her because it was going to break up her family. And those were the three slaves he had. Um, Jackson in Lexington. Um, uh, it was interesting, in, in Virginia back then, there were laws on the books uh, that had grown out of the, 19, the 1830s Nat Turner Rebellion, where an educated slave had led an uprising and killed the masters. And so they had put um, laws on the books saying, you weren't allowed to teach slaves to read, because Nat Turner had been literate. And 
So Jackson, in, in, in going against all of this, founded a, a, a Sunday school for slaves in Lexington. Extremely popular, um, more than 100 people came to it. It was successful, he was regarded, he was regarded fondly from whatever we know about them. He was also, uh, by his, by, uh, his students, um, he was accosted a number of times in the streets of Lexington by people who were saying, you can't do this. You can't, you can't teach these slaves to read the Bible. As you're breaking the law, we're going to do something about it. And Jackson reacted usually very negatively to that. Um, on the very far end of that, if you go down in the Roanoke area now, there's a stained glass window in a black church with, with Stonewall Jackson on it, put there by one of his former students who became the pastor of that church later on. Um, not to say that Jackson's perfect and not to argue that slavery was a good thing, but it's a more complicated issue. Uh, on the other side, perhaps, let's get to the war now in the valley. When Jackson was fighting Nathaniel Banks in the valley, it was one of the first times that slaves crossed through Union lines in huge numbers to escape. And so thousands of slaves escaping from the evil Thomas Jackson who they believed was going to kill them. He, there was no evidence that he would. The evidence was that he would return them to their masters, but he, there was no evidence that he would kill them. But you have all of these things kind of going on. And so it, to me, this is a long-winded answer, but it, it, it's a nuanced version of slavery. Everything we know about Jackson is that he treated his own slaves well. He tried to do right by them in the Sunday school. He was certainly not abusive on any level. Um, although, as I said, if you had asked the slaves escaping through Harrisonburg, through Union lines, what they thought of Jackson, they, well, they were scared he was, he was going to kill them. statements or development to uh, kill them all, uh, did that happen before his uh, 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 religious redemption uh, or, or uh, where did that come from? Did it come from the, his he, Presbyterian training? Or? He, he believed, no, I mean, he was, he was a, a general who believed that killing the enemy was the way to win the war. I mean, it was, there was no... He wasn't there not to, he was there to kill and maim and wound and destroy. That was how you won the battles. And that was, you know, Lee was also a deeply religious man. Lincoln was a deeply religious man. All these had as their goal at, while they were fighting the war to kill the enemy. So I don't know that, that, that Jackson's religious beliefs necessarily, uh, I mean, just to take, say, Lincoln on the other side and Jackson, very, very religious people who were interested in killing large numbers of the enemy. So, I, you know, I... It's hard for anyone to reconcile, I guess, what Jesus Christ said with that. It's a problem, you know, in Western civilization. Um, although, as I said, if you went in World War II and asked, polled people in churches around the country what they thought we should do with Germans and Japanese, I, I, I think they would have approved of killing them. I mean, we're getting into moral ar arguments that are kind of esoteric. But anyway, I don't think it's that uncommon is the point for someone to be an aggressive killer and also a religious person. I mean, also, and, and really, frankly, you know, Lee and, and Jackson were absolutely convinced that God was on their side. There was no doubt in their minds, just as there was not in Lincoln's. No doubt, none at all, no doubt, that they were fighting what amounted to a holy war. And what was the Presbyterian rule that pre prohibited him <laughs> from, from uh, marrying his... Uh, his first wife's sister. According, I guess, to the codes at the time, you, your, uh, that Ma Maggie, Ellie's, Ellie was the first wife. Ellie died. 
that Maggie, her sister, was Jackson's sister for all eternity according to the actual rules of the church. That was, in other words, sister. That, her, that your wife's sister was, was your sister. What was, you know, it was, it was, it was a sisterly relationship, and it was, it was just forbidden um, by the church. Uh, and so Jackson couldn't really do anything about it. Otherwise, I, I think he almost certainly would have married her. Maggie Junkin is an interesting case. I mean, her, so Jackson's, uh, both Ellie and Maggie, their father was uh, George Junkin, famous theologian, president of Washington College. Um, Maggie, the, the, the sister that survived that Jackson was in love with, becomes one of the more famous literary figures in the South, the poetess of the Confederacy, who on good terms with... Uh, Longfellow and Browning and all these other people. Anyway, anyway, thank you for coming. I appreciate it. <laughs>